Well, this morning's discussion will revolve around the um, exotic theme of disincarnate uh, intelligences and non-human entities that seem to occupy a kind of undefined ontological limbo in terms of uh, precisely what their status in the world is. Whatever their status in the world is, when you start looking at the question of these disincarnate entities, um, the first thing that strikes you is their persistence in human experience and folklore. This is not something uh, unusual or statistically rare in all times and in all places with the possible exception of Western Europe for the past 200 years a kind of social commerce between human beings and various kinds of disincarnate entities uh, or non-human intelligences was taken for granted and this could be as simple as the Celtic farmer's wife leaving out a pitcher of milk for the fey folk, or it could take more uh, elaborate forms. Um, because the second aspect of this question that you encounter is the tremendous variety of these entities that we're apparently talking about a kind of parallel taxa in another continuum because we have jinns, afrites, uh, water nixies, uh, boulder grinders, uh, gnomes. The list is endless and that's only the uh, list within the context of the European imagination. Once you add in all the... Uh, various ethnic takes on the potential for non-human intelligent life forms, you have a truly vast uh, array of peculiar uh, creatures, all expressive of a very fundamental belief system that seems to be inimical to the human condition. Well, before we get into the history of this idea, it might be good to simply review the uh, logical options that are open to us in examining a phenomenon of this sort. And I take the logical options to be basically three, that these entities are in some sense, or that some of these entities are uh, rare but physical and they uh, sort of operate somewhere between the Coleocanth and the Bigfoot. They it potentially could be imagined moving from the realm of mythology into the realm of established uh, zoological or botanical fact. And this has in fact happened in uh, some fairly unspectacular cases. This is certainly the least interesting. But for example, the Yeti, is a creature which refuses to declare whether it is simply a rare member of the ordinary taxa of this planet or something quite different. The second option that lies before us when we look at the ontological status of these entities is what I would think of as the Jungian position. And to demonstrate it, I'll simply quote Jung on the subject of uh, sprites and elementals. He calls them 
uh, autonomous fragments of psychic energy which have temporarily escaped from the controlling power of the ego. In other words, <laughs> this is what I would call the mentalist, mentalist reductionist approach mm. to disincarnate entities and intelligences. It's saying they are somehow uh, part and parcel of our own minds and their existence is dependent upon our uh, conceiving them as objects in our imagination, however pathologically expressed. In other words, the humanist position that all God's entities and so on are merely projections, projections. of our own minds. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. The projection, escaped mental, pro well, escaped from the controlling <laughs> force of the ego. It's a wonderful image. <laughs> and then the third and obviously more interesting but fraught with uh, argumentative pitfalls is that these are, one, non-physical, and two, autonomous in their existence in some sort, in some sense. In other words, that they actually do carry on an existence independence of their being, independent of their being perceived by human beings. And then, uh, and this is the position, the classical position, of those who have had the largest amount of experience dealing with these entities, which are shamans, ecstatics and so-called sensitive or edge types in all kinds of social situations. Uh, this position, which is the most, in a sense, uh, elegant and commiserate with the evidence that they are in fact autonomous and non-physical, nevertheless poses a tremendous barrier for the scientific and Western mind because the eradication of spirit from the visible world has been a project prosecuted with great zeal with, concomitant to the rise of modern science. And the admission that that project overlooked something as fundamental as a communicating intelligent agency uh, co-present with us on this planet would be more than a dangerous admission of, uh, of uh, the failure of an intellectual method. It would pretty much seal the bankruptcy of an intellectual method. <laughs> so, science has handled this problem by creating a tiny subset within its vast mansion of concerns called schizophrenia. And schizophrenia has been uh, deemed a concern of psychologists, not the most honored members of the legion of the house of science. And they have been told to take care of this problem, please. And this is where we get the Jungian mentalist reductionist model. What's interesting about that model, which is the reigning model of what entities may be, is that it's... Um, appeal is in direct proportion to your lack of direct experience with the phenomenon that it seeks to explain. In other words, everyone who has ever encountered a disincarnate uh, intelligence of this sort knows that this is a pitifully inadequate, a woefully inadequate description of the phenomenon. Uh, before I close, I just want to make one digression uh, to drive home the point that this is not a uh, 
pursuit of dilettantes or obscurantes, the question of the status of these entities, because if we examine the history of early modern science, we discover that some of the major movers and shakers in that situation were in fact uh, being guided and directed in the formulation of uh, early science by disincarnate entities. In the case of John Dee, the great flower of Elizabethan science, he actually had commerce with angels uh, and all sorts of entities of this type uh, over decades. No less a founder of modern scientific rationalism than René Descartes actually was set on the path uh, toward the realization of the ideals of modern science by an angel who appeared to him in a dream and told him that the conquest of nature is to be achieved through measure and number. This enunciation, which is really the battle cry of modern science, first passed from the lips of an angel. Mm. So, and then uh, the well-known example of Kekule, the discoverer of the benzene ring, by seeing the Ouroboric symbol the snake taking its tail in its mouth, the ancient symbol of eternity, and understanding that it was the solution to a molecular structure problem that he had been dealing with. Mm. This aspect of science, that much of its premises have been transferred to mankind from a hidden realm of higher intelligence, is completely suppressed in its own official history which is that it's the story of rational thought's conquest of the dark world of superstition. So I think uh, uh, as we look at these entities, as we try to place them in context to to human society, a more um, a way of internalizing what they can do for us is to look more toward the shamanic model where these spirits were not only identified, but the uh, adjective helping was added. And what was envisioned was a kind of symbiosis between ourselves and an invisible world of higher intent. And this has certainly been lacking in the expression of modern science as a social force. And uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea, perhaps, to, in any future model, of uh, society to attempt to inculcate into it uh, whatever wisdom, whatever insight is represented by these uh, forces. Now, I suppose it would be not fair to close without mentioning that the aversion to the irrational is something that science uh, inherited from Christianity and that what uh, all of these voices of nature, of the sky, of the earth, uh, were suppressed by Christianity in favor of the triune mystery of the Trinity. And a rebirth or a rise in the volume of the voices of the elementals, which is how I interpret what's going on, seems to me part and parcel with the ecological crisis of the planet. I mean, the planet is attempting to speak Everything which can signify is reaching out toward humanity to try and reclaim us for the family of nature 
from this rather pathological trip that we've been on for a long time. So the elementals, these voices, the promptings of the disincarnate entities are, uh, if not to be heeded, certainly to be carefully considered and studied. We are wandering in a wilderness and here is a prompting voice. So then the analysis without uh, prior commitment to any kind of epistemic conclusion would seem very useful at this point. Hmm. So that's all I really have to say about it. I'll bet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is very modest, Terence, that you have given the survey of these different views. Actually, we have our own view as we'll uh, evolve in these next minutes. So I'd like to attempt to give a rocket boost into our own sphere here to get started. And uh, I'll try uh, a model, a sort of a mathematical model, which I think we're all close to, and that is the trinity of uh, early Christianity, which came from uh, directly from the Neoplatonic. This is the one called not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but the body, the soul, and the spirit. Here the body is more or less the Gaia of the Orphic Trinity, the material ordinary reality, the matter, energy, universe, and and soul is the soul we speak about, and the spirit is kind of a medium in between the body and the soul, like the Holy Ghost. And I think that entities, um, that there are kind of abstract entities, that the, 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 the Logos contains intelligence, information, evolving stuff. And we could just sort of try um, identifying this with the top layer and the soul, the world soul level. And here are kind of abstract. We don't know how, we don't have a cognitive strategy for dealing directly with entities of the world soul. But the world soul is coupled to this, uh, the Gaia level, where our um, minds are operating closer to the material plane than the soul plane because of the limitations of language. The separation of conscious and unconscious has to do with this triune model. So as an abstract entity, difficult to cognate because of its complexity in the multidimensional spheres of the world soul, reaches down, propagates through the the spirit, which is a kind of like electromagnetic field, a a medium, you see, extending between these parallel planes or concentric spheres of of soul and individual mind, then it comes more and more into cognitive forms which belong to our mind in its evolution in the sense of morphogenetic field. And then it gets into representations which are culturally dependent, such as uh, fairies, bikinis, and elementals, and and so on. So this is just a background model where I I think we're closer than, this is closest to three of your list, the non-physical but real. But it also allows for a kind of a spectrum of different forms of what are essentially the same entities, and that their representation, they might be timeless, more or less, uh, in the celestial sphere, as it were, but their cognitive map into our own consciousness depended on our 
paradigm, our worldview, and so on is evolving. And for this reason, you get in different cultures the, the elves, the fairies, the pantheon of gods, and so on. And particularly in the Christian, even though this triune model was made illegal, I think it was in 879 in the Council of Byzantium that the spirit was made illegal, and then we went from three to two, so there's only body and soul, for this reason that no one nowadays, this is I think the reason why no one knows the difference between spirit and soul and thinks that they're the same, and we talk about spiritual, the inspiration, bringing down the spirit into the world, which we need now because our society's had an expiration over the past 200 years, as you said, in order to have an inspiration we have to know what is spirit and what is soul if they're not the same, and we, we need to learn this model or some other model if there is one more appropriate to our time. So I think that this is a, a context in which we could uh, place in parallel and with full validity all of these different representations. And in this list, in your initial taxonomy, I think we should include the saints and saintesses of the Christian and the Catholic religion because in spite of um, the one God, the Yahweh theme of the Judeo-Christian tradition, there uh, exist always this changing and l local uh, list of deities which actually are the Christian form of these elves and, and so on. And uh, we have the, the idea of the, 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 the timeless forms, or even there's an evolution, let us say, on a slower time scale in the celestial sphere, but their representations are multifarious and these representations closer to our own cognition, these are evolving very rapidly. And we have the different time scales, kind of like mathematical physics that uh, we can deal with in discussing this. That makes possible, in other words, to make identifications between an earth spirit of this culture and an earth spirit of that culture, as in the diffusion of mythology there is what Jung called archetypes, just suggest that different layers in a spectrum of reality or particularness or individuality of these things. Well, one of the things that you have to wonder if you go for that it's a non-physical autonomous entity of some sort, then that raises another set of questions, which is, is it a non-physical autonomous entity unrelated to us except by the fact that we can share the same uh, communication space? Or is it in fact somehow related to our own existence, not in the sense of being dependent upon it or maintained by it, but all this talk of soul and spirit leads then to the question of the relationship of the dead to these uh, disincarnate entities. It's very interesting. Did you know that the uh, dogma of purgatory in Christian theology was not created by theologians in Rome? It was created by St. Patrick in uh, an effort to make Christian doctrine more commiserate with Celtic uh, folk belief in the process of converting Ireland to Christianity because the fairy faith that was in place when Patrick landed in Ireland was a faith that the dead souls coexist with us invisibly in ordinary space and can be seen by people 
who have a special ability. And he took that notion and turned it into purgatory and it was so successful in the conversion of Ireland that later councils wrote that into general church dogma. But it was a, genuf a genuflection to the Celtic folk belief in this way station of souls that was uh, all around them. And of course we've not mentioned that for modern people the major tool for contacting these entities in any kind of controllable fashion is psychedelic compounds, especially DMT and tryptamines. And those sort of experiences seem to line up pretty well with the, the Celtic folklore concerning the habits, humor, style, and presentational mode of these uh, entities, or at least a class of these entities, the little people class of these entities. Well, of course, the Celtic people came from Eastern Europe, you know, and they had contact with the, the cradle of civilization, as it's called, or they were the cradle of civilization. And the view of the underworld um, introduced into church canon by St. Patrick we have already in the Sumerian, Babylonian, Ugaritic models. Um, the Sumerian myth of Inanna and Demusi, for example. You have Inanna goes to the underworld and speaks with her sister Erish Kegel, who is the queen of the underworld. So somehow this is very old. The land of the dead, the journey of the dead. I mean, we're uh, touching really deep stuff here. Chatal Hoyuk, there are all these skeletons were stuffed under the house that evidently were left outside in the prairie to decompose and when nothing but bones were left they were like folded up in convenient bundles tied and stuffed under the house so this is uh, an example of one aspect the, the mythological side the birth and death the, the, the deepest layers of the fairy tradition but in my model of the spirit between the, the mundane and the celestial Spheres. I, I think that there uh, is a is a prehistory going back much deeper, in which this was more or less light metaphors of light and so on that were particularized in human form, near human form, and whatever forms were reasonable in a given culture, then in whatever language of form is available in the mind of that culture, then these. Uh, entities would have to materialize in those forms. And I think that the underworld, even though it goes back at least 2,000 years to Sumer, is a displacement from this middle between us and the sky, that some bit of sky, you see, was brought low. And this has to do with the patriarchal takeover and the creation of the unconscious to begin with, that some something was essentially made bad in the perpetual difficulty of our species in dealing with the birth and death experiences. You used the word language, uh, and it occurs to me all of these disincarnate entities would be but dancing hallucinations before us were it not for the fact that they possess the ability to address us in languages which we can cognize and instantly we transfer to them a whole new uh, power 
and importance because they speak, because they are transferring information from somewhere to us, and only a very small percentage of which are we able to do anything with. And I wonder um, exactly what this is about. The traditional notion, and I'm sort of restricting myself now to the no-mouth end of this, is that they are artificers of some sort. They, they are master artisans working in metals and with jewels and that sort of thing. Well, then, is the whole... Since shamanism, we know, begins with a kind of deep interpenetration into early metallurgy, that in fact the smith and the shaman are, the, are two twin brothers that are work, linked together in the working with matter, the extraction of energy from matter. Well then, is this whispering from the demon artificers, a phrase which Jung uses, the whisperings of the demon artificers have led us into technological self-expression and perhaps indeed into self-expression, period. So, it's the languages that pose the problem. Otherwise, it would simply be a vision beheld before the eyes, open to interpretations of all sorts. But the fact that they speak to us and we understand is very, very puzzling. And I don't think, uh, you know, modern thinkers don't even want to talk about it. They just call this schizophrenia and put you in a small room and leave you there. But a fair reading, as you mentioned last night, Ralph, of the history of modern science, as presented by somebody like Thomas Kuhn, shows that the irrational in this objectified form is very active in, in the process that we call history. It's just that we don't like to admit that because we're committed to an official philosophy of reason and casuistry. Mm-hmm. We have two different models going on here in uh, information transmission, as it were. There's the horizontal theory of cultural diffusion, where, for example, since you mentioned that these um, entities are artisans in metal, then perhaps we learn uh, metalworking from them. So the Chalcolithic Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution, we see that it took place in one part of the world later than another part. It suggests an outgoing circle wave of transmission. The agricultural revolution in Britain was in 3500 B.C., in France in 4500 B.C., in Anatolia in 7000 B.C., and so on. So not only it moves, it moves slowly. It's been tracked by archaeologists and so on. This is the horizontal theory. On the other hand, if we need for our future evolution and for our past history as well that brought us successfully to this point to have inspiration, to make shamanistic journeys, to travel vertically and to go into the world of the spirit, reaching out joyously toward the celestial sphere where some of this information we need has been stored up somehow or is in a process of evolution. Then we would expect that the Chalcolithic, I mean the fairy folk, would have shown people how to work bronze in many different places at the same time or maybe what has traveled in cultural diffusion is just 
the habit, the wish, or the means, the technology of communicating with angels so that we can receive this information. Descartes was somehow open to this dream. Kikul was open to this dream. And we actually have worked hard, the three of us, in the pursuit of our own dreams in order to draw information down vertically from the celestial spheres in order to re-inspire our own generation with this sacred knowledge. So we have these uh, two dimensions in our model, whereas modern science and the so-called modern paradigm has allowed only one dimension, the, the horizontal diffusion. And as far as the original inspiration for bronze metalworking, that would be an accident that took place near a volcano or I don't know. Something like Why that. do you suppose early modern science became so averse to these phenomena at the same time that there was such a zeal for the ca uh, cataloging and description of all the productions of ordinary nature? Well, that's a giant question. We know where it happened and when it happened in a short span of time, and we can study the history of that time, let us say, between John Dee and Newton in England, and we can study everything that went on. We still don't understand what went wrong, because none of the developments in the scientific enlightenment seem to be explicitly adverse to angels. And uh, Newton believed in alchemy, and that means particularly astrological alchemy, the little astrology, and that means that the significance of the stars, the hand of God, and the reality of the trinity, the full trinity, that means the body, the soul, the spirit, and, and so on. At the same time, Descartes also, Descartes and Newton, that we frequently blame for our me mechanistic paradigm, and, okay. and so on, they were full of the spirit themselves, yet they daren't speak because of the examples of fascist terrorism all around them, and what had happened to other people who spoke. Giordano Bruno, I think, is one of the most particular cases. If you have to point at a particular case, here the fact that he was burned at the stake in a field in Rome in front of an enthusiastic, cheering audience of 300,000 people on Easter Sunday or something, that he was offered his last chance to recant and denied it. And he said, if you'll only say that the world is finite, we'll let you go. And he thought and he said, I shouldn't say that, so I won't. And they burned it. Well, that would be one kind of thing. I mean, it must be a factor in there. And yet, he he didn't recant, as Galileo did. And uh, Well, the whole ambiance of his world was one of stellar demons being called down. And this was how Renaissance magic worked, was by the communication with these stellar demons, they were called, and the lining up of uh, resonant incenses, minerals, colors, to draw these things down. Perhaps they succeeded, and out of the Renaissance came modern science after the pact was made. Starting with an astronomical revolution. Yeah. And, <clears throat> I mean, for me the question seems to be, um, are these classes of entity that, you, that one can experience, and which I think principally are experienced by most people in the realm of dreams? Because in our dreams we travel in a realm where we ourselves can travel in a strange way. We meet people who are dead, 
we meet other people from different parts of the world. We meet strange situations and experiences, of quite unpredictable. Our dreams live in a kind of autonomous realm. Now, the reductionist theory is that's just because it's part of our own psyche. The traditional theory is that in our dreams we travel out of our bodies and we do enter what the theosophists call the astral plane or this other realm. The realm of our dreams is a personal nightly journeying into these realms of other entities, sometimes penetrating some realms, other, other times others. Some people have dreams of angelic beings, others have dreams of nightmare qualities, of hellish qualities, that all these are different regions, as it were, of heaven, hell, and purgatory, which can actually be accessed through the dreams. Um, that's the idea, autonomous dreams, and all people throughout the world believe when you dream you travel out of your body in another realm. And this therefore means that the realm of entities includes the realms of the dead, the realms of the dreamers, and the, the imaginative world of the dreamers. And um, then also, does the realm of entities include the spirits of species? For example, the spirit of the earth the spirit of the solar system, the spirit of each star, which would be these stellar geniuses or angels, angelic intelligences, the spirits of each species of vegetation, of plant, of mushroom, of, you know, of, of, of each kind of, each species of plant or animal, has its own way of being, its own repetitive form, its own way of seeing the world and experiencing it, its own way of reflecting participation in the whole from a different point of view from anything else, like a kind of monad. Okay. Um, so if each species has its own spirit or guardian spirit or in a Christian terminology perhaps guardian angel but at any rate its own kind of spirit then these are things that shamans have talked to about wolf spirits, crow spirits and all these animal spirits which are a major part of the shamanic fauna um, and then there are plant spirits of various kinds and then nature spirits, waterfall spirits, naiads you know as you mentioned all these traditional ariads, mountain spirits tree spirits and so forth this would be the natural historical basis of the entire system it seems to me rooted in the species of nature the intelligences of each species of bird and of animal and of its characteristic space its own characteristic spirit you know like if you become like a hawk you fly like a hawk you see like a hawk you take on a kind of hawk like quality of being that these sort of hawk spirits and stuff are all biologically grounded and the others, the angelic ones, are rooted in actual stars and planetary systems and galactic spirits which so that the whole system is a system of intelligences which in some sense are either have a bodily aspect or were at one time embodied like the dead, the departed so that is it all grounded in the bodily aspect of the world, as it were? Or is there a free-floating, totally separate realm of entities, an entirely autonomous kind, um, that are kind of free-living? Now, it seems to me that Ralph's model of the, the world soul and the world imagination would admit either of these possibilities. You know, whether all entities have a kind of biological or physical base be it a star, a species of animals or plants, a kind of crystal or whatever. So that everything at one point passes through matter and that passage through matter allows the eternal existence of the form in this other realm after the matter has dissolved from the form and then somehow biological existence is fraught with these intimations of immortality. Be who knows why I mean we just pick up on 
our own destiny, as it were. And it lies in this animate, but disincarnate realm. Yes. Well, that would be a very happy scenario. Well, I would rather speak of animal souls than animal spirits, and so on, preserving um, the soul for somehow the ultimate end of the great chain of being. And... um, Spirit is may be which is some sort of elastic medium, medium connecting it all up. It might be the venue of our travels in dreams and shamanistic journeys and so on, because maybe we cannot reach, not in consciousness anyway, all the way to the soul. But we have visions of the logos that may be very close to the soul. On the soul level, certainly it's all connected up and all is one, as in the oversoul of Emerson and Thoreau and so on. There's a great pancake in the sky, which may participate in the material world by ripping off a piece of it, rips off, and then incarnates in, in, in a blob of protoplasm or something as, as a bad habit, is this incarnation, like our eating meat or something. And, but in this view, which I, I think is the essence of the Hermetic tradition, Everything has soul. Spirit is just spirit. It's like air, but everything has soul. Animals have soul. Rocks have soul. The souls are permanent. Their occupation in a rock or in a tree is temporary. The interaction between these different planes is one of a resonant wave phenomenon that has different uh, places along the great chain, has more or less of the particulate aspect of ordinary reality where we are beings should be a connected, you know, geometric object, for example, is only here and there. Other places it's all spread out like moving wallpaper. So in this view, a kind of hermetic view, we have our greatest opportunity to understand ourselves, our history, and I think to take a stance for a real future because the history on this scale of the world soul, the morphogenesis, first, uh, this biological life on planet Earth is very recent in the global time scale, whether you believe in the Big Bang and the scientific creation myth or not, that certainly the morphogenesis of the stars, I mean, these entities that have taken from time to time in their history incarnation, in constellations in the sky or whatever they long preceded they have a whole lot more experience and the the incarnation in the atmosphere at the motion moment when they decided to have oxygen you know how how was this i mean here, here's a great catastrophe in our evolution which is not quite explained the chicken and the egg problem in this evolutionary great step we got the the oxygen it has something to do with the incarnation of a whim of spirit of of imagination on the level of the world soul decided to screw around with the organisms in the ocean on planet earth and create oxygen and see what happened and all of this has enormous history compared to the extreme youth of our incarnation in animal mammalian bodies and human bodies and the development of language and so on so in traveling up the great chain of being toward the world soul, we're getting in touch with these things which must precede any capability we have of verbalization or understanding and mammalian experience and so on. And yet, they do seem to reach out for contact. And then they try, I suppose, to learn our language and communicate as the, the corn circles in England, for example, apparently are 
a kind of a semiotic where a cornfield as an organism of the world soul or the guy and soul let us say if you particularize to planet earth the guy and soul is trying to speak to us and find some language so developing an alphabet little by little just as we developed cuneiform you see I think the best theory is and really with visit as Ralph says it's the world soul communicating to us but if it turned out that in fact it were exactly what the most persuaded school of rationalist explainers believes it is, namely whirlwinds uh -huh. of a particularly focused kind, yeah. you suddenly discover they're right. Suddenly whirlwinds can take on entirely new patterns of focus and write new patterns and so that there's a kind of spirit behind the whirlwind the that really expresses itself well, the, the as many traditions have always believed. The spiraling form of the whirlwind, a whirlwind is probably an extremely complex organized entity. It's an expression of DNA, it's an expression of the ordering morphology of the galaxy. I would expect it's a higher spiral, yes. It's, yes, it's a higher it's order form form of life, yes. but it still has a spiraling energy form. Mm. Well, maybe uh, some kind of breakthrough is not far away. When you, this, these facts I recited about the early modern science and how all these guys were shaped in their ideas by converse with these entities, what would it be like to take that notion seriously enough to actually open a kind of uh, embassy to the invisible so that we could have <laughs> commerce and treaties and uh, exchange of uh, patents and yes, that the shamans sort of are ambassadors <laughs> well that must be what in fact is going on but yes. what you need to do is bring a lot to it I mean if you understand the differential calculus and the theory of hyperfine reactions you may be able to work out a different treaty than if all you understand is blowguns and canoe manufacture. Well, that's where mathematical modeling comes in, as Ralph must be thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I confess that I do have in mind a mathematical model for the world, soul, spirit, and the mundane that I would like to run as a video game in arcades or in Disneyland or something because the bad habits of science in the past 400 years have had the unfortunate effect of depriving us of a mathematical model of the spirit and the soul and therefore our understanding of the material world is just because of these uh, peculiar selection, the selectivity of scientists as it evolved, you know, that neglected the spirit world as far as modeling is concerned. So our understanding could be advanced. I mean, our understanding is somewhere, it's not nowhere, because we have ideas of fairies, angels, saints, and, and so on. I wonder how accurate and reliable the, the maps are that the occultists have accumulated in their fashion over the past couple of hundred years. I remember when I first read A.E. Waite's uh, Ceremonial Magic, what struck me was that there were lieutenants, generals, majors, they were assigned different yes. medals, each had its own sigil, each had its own dedicated incenses that were to be burned and yes, special yeah, tell you the history of that, you probably know it. Uh, A.E. Wade is derived from the Enochian. The Enochian is the revelation to John Dee of an earlier magic. And when we look in the literature of the pre-Christian 
Jews in Jerusalem and especially in Alexandria. There we find the Markaba mysticism. Um, in heaven, you know, there's the seventh heaven. I mean, seventh heaven. Actually, there are eight heavens according to the Merkabah mystics. These are visualized as kind of concentric spheres, and this is a particular visualization of the, the, the spirit, of the logos, of the elastic medium between here and the end of the great chain of being, the one God. So, uh, in the eighth heaven, you have God in his own castle in his own chambers and along the way there are these chariots you know with the wheels that go this way and this way and then there's the being that's holding up the chariot which has four faces one facing in each direction the lion and so on and then there's to get into the chariot there are the four gates and each gate has four eight guardians four on each side and you have to repeat each of them with a word with an incident and all of this was revealed to travelers who were doing their best to be ambassadors. They were going out to bring back the necessary knowledge for our evolution, and one by one, in successive generations, and they wrote down and kept their records, and they had their specific means of traveling, which involved putting your head between your knees in a dark room in the basement, for which reason they spoke of going down to the chariot instead of going up to the chariot, which was envisioned in the sky. So these early travelers of the millennium before Christ had brought back this picture which evolved into what we have today under the name of ceremonial magic in the Western tradition. And since it's a quite a long history of a constant vision, which is a particular, well, verbal, they never drew pictures. They just described this in words as far as we know, the original manuscripts are extant. Many of them collected in, in uh, Jerusalem. And, and translated. And translated from Hebrew into English by several different translators and studied by these scholars known to people so who read So that is the root of the sigil, the circle, yes. the holy words, yes. the, um, the holy, the letters, the the holy letters, all of that can well, be traced to Babylonia, but to Chaldean magic. But through this Merkaba mystical yes. tradition. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. You see, I keep going back to this thing about language. You get this same peculiar emphasis on language and letters in the esoteric doctrines that surround uh, the chakras in Tantric Shaivism. A huge amount of exegesis goes into the explication of these letters which appear on the petals of the chakras. and. Uh, talking about the ontological status of these letters and what they mean and so forth. It's, it's as though uh, the medium of language itself is under review in these uh, encounters with these entities. It may be that somehow the field of language needs to be prepared for... Uh, communication with them, or that the field of language can be prepared for communication with them, and that what happened in the West was some kind of peculiar stiffening of language against the ability to perceive and express this stuff that is now beginning to break down. That yes, we have to misuse language as our divine responsibility. Yes, and, and that linearity and print and all that conferred upon language an inability to deal with the invisible world in any meaningful way. And so it just became pathology. But now 
it's returning and people such as ourselves who have one foot in each world have a real obligation to cognize this and move well, forward. The Indian tradition, according to the theory of Alan Danyali, identifies Shiva with Dionysus. And Dionysus, according to Diodorus Siculus, writing the history of the world in 50 BC, is a translation of Isis to Crete. So there's the suggestion then combining these two historians of a transmission from uh, of the Isis um, legend from Egypt to the Indus River. That's uh, it's sort of a suggested transmission there. And if so, we could see the Judeo-Christian tradition preceding primarily from the Chaldean and the Hindu primarily from the Egyptian. And the enormous differences between these two nearby systems coexisting in the same time and evolving, but in totally different flavors of images and so on. They're really different. The, the language, the, uh, I know the Indo-European versus the Semitic, basically. Completely different images, language, alphabets, gods, and, 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 and yet, to go back one step, so reaching out, outreach to Chatal Hoyok to, to try to see the common root of the Sumerian, say, Babylonian on the one hand and the Egyptian um, on the other. Each had a version of the Hermetic tra tradition with magic, with journeys, with the afterlife, and, and, and so on. But here we reach sort of the dawn of, of, of the... the horizon of our current vision into the past is there. We can't really see into Anatolia very well. Well, I believe that the people that you call Egyptian were the African peoples who were coming out of Africa at the as the glaciation as the interglacial proceeded and that the people that you're calling Sumerian were Northern. these older people who had been already crossed into Asia before the, gla the last glacier, mm -hmm. and they were there. And then when these two floods came together during the last melt, uh, history was born in the subjugation yes. of these... Uh, so this is the horizon you're suggesting that might actually be the Holocene, that the prehistorians never suggest uh, civilizations before the Holocene. There's very little discussion of the intelligent uh, science, mythology, and so on of these, uh, you know, 100, 200, 300,000 year BC, what is going on during these previous interglacials. And it could be that there was agriculture. I mean, there would be no way to rule that out, that there was an agricultural revolution in the, <coughs> in the interglacial before the Holocene. Mm -hmm. So what are they called, the Cro-Magnon, or the, uh, the Neanderthals, I guess is the usual word for this uh, period of time. So I'm suggesting they had navigation, they had architecture, they had sacred geometry, and they had astrology, and they had magic and travel and their own images of the heavens and the underworld. All of that tradition comes fully formed into the Holocene interglacial from these previous interglacials from the memory of people hiding out in caves, preserving their knowledge in cave drawings. Yes, I think the major cultural artifact that was added during that glacial period that the new people expressed uh, as they moved out of Africa 
17,000 years ago was pastoralism. Pastoralism was invented during that last interglacial, during that last glacial period when those populations were bottled up in Africa. All previous human migrations into the Middle East out of Africa had been in the absence of domesticated animals. When you mentioned that this entity theme was uh, of high importance in the Hermetic uh, tradition, was it because you were thinking of the fact that actually the main focus of the of the uh, uh, well book four of the Hermetic corpus is this animation of statues? This was a major concern in the early Hermetic tradition was to somehow draw the stellar demon down into a simulacrum from which it could then articulate. Yes, this is a high technology of beyond mm -hmm. communications, assisting in the intervention, talking about embassies. Embassies were temples, and if we were going to think about uh, someday a new society of world order, you know, what education would be, what rituals would be, and so on. I, I think we should take count of the fact that um, our culture had evolved around rituals, that they were very important guiding centers, particularly the, um, the Akitu festival, um, the, the paradigmatic New Year's festival that was celebrated annually in Babylonia for 13 years, for, for 2,000 years without missing a beat. This had certain basic elements which characterize our whole history, most particularly the sacred marriage and the sacred procession. The sacred marriage was the obtaining for a, a, a temporary contract for one year between the king, that is to say the social organization of humans in this city-state, with a divine god and goddess essentially in charge of prosperity, crops, and and so on. So that was contract was renewed for a year in the New Year's festival in the sacred marriage, which was kind of a ritual that was played out with actors and actresses. But the role of the king was actually played by the king, who actually took his power from the ritual. Then the sacred procession had to do with the hermetic empowerment of the statues of gods and goddesses, which include a lot of animals, mushrooms, and so on, and then these were paraded in a circle tour through the town and everything, and one of the day, usually these festivals lasted 11 days, so there's plenty of time to do a lot of stuff. But Egypt had more festivals than days in the year. It wasn't necessary to go to them. The priests and priestesses did the work for you. You could just keep on working. But every day, one of the temples in one of the cities of Egypt would be having one of these things where they're doing the work for you. And it involved the magical empowerment of these statues. And the main theme was celestial magic. I mean, it was the incorporation or the bringing down the inspiration of Gaia with celestial themes, intelligence, and and powers. Uh, understanding Gaia as a younger entity than a celestial <coughs> sphere. I would see that as the, the key theory, if there is one, in the Hermetic corpus. And the reason why a lot of people nowadays practicing magic are specializing in star magic and trying to reconstruct it from the corrupt mythology of Western astrology. So then, what um, personal experience do, um, do, do we have of entities? I mean, 
if there are star spirits, as I believe perfectly possible, and I think it's very likely you can invoke them by various kinds of magic, and you could somehow connect with the star, and I think to do that you'd have to look at it. I don't think it's any good doing this just from books. I think you have to lie on into the sky and actually connect with the star through the line of sight, or do it through a mirror or whatever, but you have to look at it. Um, then, if that's possible, um, what kind of information would such beings impart? We know that they thought that Sirius had particular things, Aldebrand, various stars had particular properties, and you know, Algol was a dangerous one. Um, so there were these uh, widespread beliefs about the properties of particular stars, and then there were lots of hosts of lesser stars, and in fact, most books on angels and most accounts of angels describe them as innumerable as the stars are. And um, the connection of angels and stars is made very explicit in Christian tradition. So there's one class of spirits associated with stars. Now, have you ever met one? And if we haven't met one, which I haven't, uh, could we or would we want to try and meet one by carrying out an appropriate ceremony, invocation in a suitably receptive pharmacological state or whatever? Well, with the proviso suitable pharmacological state, I think suddenly the stage becomes crowded uh, <laughs> with stellar demons, earth demons, and what have you. Um, but do you know for sure that they're stellar demons? Have you ever connected your experience of a stellar demon with directly looking at its resident star and well, connecting yes, through the senses? We do have this experience in a limited way. Among the stars, there are all these asterisms, which are among our most ancient knowledge. And I think pictograms, petroglyphs, and so on, in many cases, are drawings of asterisms. It's sort of like a Rorschach when you look at the sky. And there are all these dots, and you could connect them up any way. When there's a tradition of connecting them up in a certain way, then you have an astrological tradition. So mythology, I mean, there's star mythology, is uh, all of the Greek myths, for example, are projected into the sky in these asterisms, or what we call constellations. Mm. So uh, mythology is suggested that myth is from mythos. Mythos meant the, the lyrics, the words of the songs from the rituals, and that the myths gained the power they now have in our conscious and unconscious lives through their secondary role in the ritual, which I think the ritual and the myth together as part of our tradition is one of the most important things for us to regain. And these old rituals were actually the bringing down the, the place where star magic was worked successfully to empower our evolution. Our own experience, like my experience of watching the sky and trying to figure out the asterisms that had only been going on for two or three years, However, in all of these astrological systems that we know, the wanderers are particularly important and most important the sun and the moon. And we do have, I think, travels and communications with the sun and the moon in our recent experience of shamanic uh, journeys and, and dreams. There were during the 1960s in Santa Cruz when I first came there, uh, monthly moon festivals where we did a ritual that we imagine very much to be like the Dionysian festivals in Crete, the Orphic rituals translated to Greece as the Eleusinian mysteries and so on, where psychedelics were sexual rites and star magic were combined into um, an annual or monthly ritual of tremendous 
power, of adequate power to produce prosperity for people, for animals, for plants, and peace. Uh, peace, I think, was not produced by just a partnership paradigm with a lucky society to have escaped the bad habits of the dominator paradigm. There was also the conscious interaction with the peaceful initiative of the celestial sphere in bringing peace down. I mean, Crete had no fortifications. They had all this wealth. Like, they had wealth like Kuwait, and they didn't get captured until the third millennium. So we have definitely our experience of the sun and the moon, and if we wanted to investigate astrology experientially, then perhaps we could concentrate on the sun and the moon. Tonight will be a full moon. The moon soul will be in its greatest power. The spirit between the moon and, the, and ourselves, our own soul will be in its most receptive, and we can do an experiment. The sun, I think we spoke yesterday of the eclipse of the sun and its uh, the power of this experience in the in the psyche, and that would be also a place where we could look for a modulation of the influence of the sun soul that occurs when the moon soul passes into a linear, rare, collinear arrangement with our own soul. So those are some experiences that we could have really on a daily basis. The uh, star magicians I came to know in Santa Cruz, uh, who came to my class, they get up every day, every morning and evening and watch the sunrise and the sunset, no matter how it disturbs their sleep schedule. And I think I have been very affected by sunrises and sunsets in my own life. Since early babyhood, I have a fantastic fascination with sunrise and sunset. In India, I had seen particularly good ones that I felt to be amplified, their meaning amplified by the appreciation of an entire civilization, a whole country, appreciating, knowing, taking the meaning, basking in the rays, and giving conscious attention to sunrise and sunset. Surya Namaskar and other greetings. Surya Namaskar. A splendid thing to do with the sun is to greet it Mm. on its arrival and... uh, to take note of the fact that it did happen again, which we have no reason to believe that it always will. Well, in our physical environment, we tend to move into cities, move into apartments, exclude nature, push it away from ourselves. In our mental environment, we actually do the same thing. Most people in a culture live in a very conventionalized set of notions that are deeply embedded in other conventionalized notions, far from any edge. I think when, it, when you go to the edges... Physically, that would mean deserts, jungles, remote and wild nature. And when you go to the edges in your own mind, meaning meditation, dreams, psychedelics, then you discover there's an extremely rich flora and fauna in the imagination that has simply been ignored because our tendency has always been to look inward, to build inward, and to turn our backs on the raging ocean of phenomena around us that entirely overwhelms our metaphors. Well, it's all the satanic spirit of science, isn't it? I mean, if one says, what was it that caused this blindness, the question you raised, um, there's something that happened around the 17th century that 
Milton described so well in Paradise Lost. There is a consciousness of the spirit of Satan, which is what Paradise Lost is largely about. And there's also a, a taxonomy of the various demons and fallen angels, um, which act as malevolent powers that somehow influence things like Mammon, the demon of commercial greed. So if, if mammon is worshipped, then you have a whole society that's motivated by money, mammon's instrument, and entirely under the influence of commercial greed, as our own is, obviously, to a very large extent. So <clears throat> here's this personification of Satan, and the primary sin of Satan is pride, turning away from God and declaring his own self-sufficiency. Well, this is precisely the beginning of turning away from God and the angelic and the whole spirit realm and declaring the self-sufficiency of man. It's the humanist um, illusion. Mm -hmm. um, so you then have this humanist point of view and then from that all God's demons and everything else become projections of the human mind which now becomes a kind of geocentric universe. I mean, it's, it's like the old geocentric model. You even get it in Ficino who says mm -hmm. man is the measure of all things when actually the order of intelligence could mm -hmm. have been the measure of all things. Exactly, it's humanism. Mm -hmm. And it's, the, it's this putting man at the center. Um, that's why this uh, adopting this alternative position of recognizing all the living, of animism, of going, recognizing the living spirit of all nature and living souls of all nature, um, is profoundly repugnant to humanism, but yet is the common ground of all human civilization, thought and tradition, apart from this um, deviation that we're, we're thinking about now. Um, so this, this blinding is a kind of satanic pride and, and the spirit of Satan is the spirit of self-sufficiency of, of being in charge and, and denial of, and the spirit of denial um, of the whole other realm. Um, like in Goethe's Faust, I mean Faust being a paradigm scientist selling his soul to the devil in return for unlimited knowledge and power, the paradigm of the entire process. By selling it through ceremonial magic, he invokes Mephistopheles. So the guiding spirit of modern science, according to the Faust myth, is, is, a, is a demon. It's, in fact, a satanic demon, a fallen angel, Mephistopheles. Um, so how seriously does one take, then, the, the, the role of Satan and of malevolent spirits in this disembodied world? Because they're part of its taxonomy and its landscape in many traditions, not any of the Christian. Um, and... How seriously does one need to take the idea that our whole society and civilization may be under the possession of such a spirit, uh, worshipped through money and other, you know, mammon? <coughs> the spirit of mammon, as Milton describes him in Paradise Lost, he says, even in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more heaven's pavement than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beatific. So there's Mammon, who has this kind of characteristic. Of, and, and then how he, when he falls to earth, the first thing he does, he and his crew opened up the sacred hill and digged out ribs of gold. It's the first thing Mammon did when he got to earth. Uh -huh. And started, and, and, and uncovering treasures better hid, Mother Nature's treasures better hid. So here's the description of a demon, which actually is the spirit of our whole civilization by Milton in Paradise Lost 
as an actual entity. Now, in, in, in that case, it's a kind of poetic entity, but it's also a biblical one, you know, uh, mammon. And mammon is, a, is one of the hosts of Satan or of, of the fallen angels. So there's this idea of these malevolent powers that goes back much... In every society, you get these malevolent deep, you know, jinns and deceptive spirits and um, da- dangerous entities um, of a kind of, in some sense, autonomous, but in some other sense related to some historical process involving human beings. So the current manifestation of this satanic uh, entity is the impasse in the world petroleum market over supplies, resources, possession, distribution. Yes, and you, you, obviously, particularly the United States needs this satanic entity to be incarnate, and now it can't be incarnate in Russia anymore. It's um, nowhere for a long time, and the entire imagination could focus on the satanic powers being over there. Um, no, communism. Now there's a perfect satanic figure emerged for the projection, being Saddam Hussein, you know, his pronouncement about hostages and babies starving and stuff. You know, now he, Hitler, the whole sort of projection thing has got working, and now he's become this totally evil power. So this same projection is operating. And um, the question is, you know, one thing, you see, one thing that does is blind us to the satanic powers within our own civilization. And if we take seriously these entities, how much can we admit the possibility that there are these malevolent entities like mammon or satanic powers or fallen angels which are actually guiding and perverting the pro- progress of science and technology, which are actually intervening and uh, conducting in many respects the, w- the ways of the world through um, influence on people, through inspiration, putting ideas in people's minds, which is how these things work. Um, and and actually channeling or directing a large portion of human history. You then get back to the classic scenario that there are some people whose consciousness goes beyond that who are fighting on the side of the light, and you get a standard good versus evil, celestial struggle, like the great war in heaven, uh, being acted out on earth. And for a lot of people, that's a very plausible picture. I mean, for these Amazonian ayahuasca Christians the idea that Satan has taken on the force of like the great dragon is coming into the forest devouring it and burning it as prophecies foretold this entire system that devours the forest and destroys and so on this whole technological civilization Leviathan as Hobbes called Leviathan. it is in fact the great dragon and somehow possessed by its spirit and that this is an entirely destructive spirit it's, it's the satanic spirit which is destroying the earth. So then, uh, you then, you see, it's very hard to avoid falling back into this archetype. And then the question is, is that the way it really is? And I see if one allows for autonomous entities, if one allows for them to have a historical rootedness and to represent spirits of things that have happened or spirits that inspired things that have happened, since human history reveals uh, millennia of oppression exploitation, imperialism, enslavement, brutality, torture, uh, and which goes on today, war, domination of every kind. Um, Is this influence somehow evolving along with humanity, or in some sense inspiring the development of civilization, or in some sense intimately and inseparably involved from it? Well, probably the process of civilization 
is going to reveal the final status of this shadow within us because as the constraints of physical resources and energy presumably fall away more and more our self-expression will be unimpeded and we don't know what you get when you get unimpeded human self-expression you know in an architectonic form or social organization or something like that on the other hand it may be just the gradual devolution in which the same old forms continue to dominate but become the satanic forms become more and more inflated by energy and attention as it were as um, as if they were in the mathematics of the process two competing attractors in this dualistic theory of uh, the battle of good and evil in heaven of God and Satan in heaven struggling with each other to attract a multitude of human souls and the uh, the forces of evil as it were progressively more inflated by the acquisition of more souls and more and more angels are falling from heaven if we wanted if people could uh, get together and try to conceptualize their, the role of their species in the evolution of the universe and decide, vote for uh, the forces of good over the forces of evil or something, and then try to redirect the trend of human consciousness and unconsciousness toward this other attractor. It would be necessary to, I suppose, to do interventions on this level with ritual, with magic, with astrology, with inspiration, with imagination, in which attention was redirected to uh, the positive forms, if we can find them, if we can identify them, probably everything is disguised as something else, and our ignorance is enormous. But uh, traditionally, I think, through the study of world mythology, ritual, religion, and so on, in the sense of Joseph Campbell, let us say, we could identify, we could, let us say we could successfully identify the good genies and then design rituals. Let us say we tried to present music and visual music on MTV and on uh, the world cable network so that people could be ex- exposed to visualizations and harmonizations of these good forms selected through from the world history of mythology, religion, and Mm. so on, collect up some of these good rituals, like we felt moon rituals were in the 1960s, and do them, present them on TV, and so on. Would they, or would they not, attract souls? And my feeling is that the uh, enhanced, the winning attractiveness of the satanic form somehow is irreversible at this time as far as the human species is concerned, is practically the only evil species as far as we can see. And uh, the evil forms, the satanic images have been most successful with people, at least during this patriarchal time of the past 6,000 years, which seems to coincide with the dawn of history. So we don't even know exactly what, what preceded in the early history of our species. So could Eros provide a counter-attractor? 
Well, I would think so. It's a fantastic. It's 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 more interesting than evil. It's it's still well. Is the forces of evil, of course, have adopted every attractor, uh, like mammon. I mean, money is perhaps not necessarily bad, and prosperity is not necessarily bad. But it seems to have been uh, engulfed by the forces of evil. Likewise, uh, sexual images have have been are used extensively and have become almost totally identified with evil. So the shadow side of sexuality in our culture has has dominated. So how could that be reclaimed? How could you even begin that? I think we'd have to ask the stars for guidance. I'm very positive about the Green Revolution, and I think the revival of the Gaian soul and our consciousness of uh, the earth as uh, living or divine being is very important. But still, I don't think this is enough. I don't think we could make it out of this cul-de-sac without the stars. So I think we need the Gaian and we need the chaotic, that is, the celestial sphere, to be reconnected, to be coupled to the human spirit in such a way that... Uh, their, their partner. That is the ultimate partnership. You're dreaming the dream of alchemical revolution that would do pride to a renaissance magus. That's um, essentially what well, you're calling for. What? Yes, uh, it's very close to John Dee's dream. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. John Dee's failed dream. And his dream failed because the Thirty Years' War wiped out the possibility of an alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. Queen Elizabeth withdrew uh, from participating in this partnership even before she died. And uh, I think that is is a key. The the failure of courage on the part of uh, Queen Elizabeth might be an important historical element in our own fall from the divine path. But we can Mm -hmm. always try again. And where would the new alchemical kingdom be? I think it would probably have to be in Czechoslovakia. You know, there's not much choice of chance of Bush's America turning into it, or Britain at the moment. Well, that was where the and original alchemical yes. kingdom was planned. For Prague. That's right. And you're on, you're your, on your way. way. <laughs> I will discuss it with proper officials. <laughs> I think I've been in Prague, and I... I think that it's a really dark place and there's very little hope of illuminating it at this time. And I have my highest hopes for England, as a matter of fact. I always have been a great Anglophile. And uh, particularly now, I think it's very auspicious there in the number of people who are thinking and reviving in great detail and with great love and integrity all of these old things, digging in the archaeology of the mind and trying to seek rituals and actually perform them and and live them. Well, why don't we call it quits there? Okay.